0: Amen. Um, We started a series uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, we've uh, titled Biblical Prosperity. And um, uh, I've got something specific in my heart that I want to to get to tonight. But in order to do that, I really feel like I need to re-preach last last Wednesday night's message. Uh, I tell you what, why don't you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. There's some things that I want to talk about in other scriptures I want to refer to first. Uh, to kind of set the stage and lay, a groundwork, lay the groundwork or a foundation for the things that we're going to say. If you were here last week, then it'll certainly help you to hear it again. If you weren't here last week, then it'll kind of catch you up to what uh, on some of the things that we said. Isaiah 55 verse 11, Isaiah speaking for God says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, meaning void of power, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. Now, the reason I wanted to start here tonight to remind you of this scripture tonight is because Isaiah, speaking for God, literally God is saying, my word works in the area that I send it to do. Now, there's a lot of ways that we could interpret that. But perhaps the simplest means of interpreting that is to say that if God speaks... Scriptures pertaining to peace, then those bring peace. If God speaks and those scriptures pertain to salvation, then those scriptures bring salvation. Now, it's not an automatic thing. You have to believe it. You have to act on it. But if they are acted on and accepted, they will produce results in the means or in the manner that God intended for them to produce. Healing scriptures, therefore, would bring us healing when acted on. Prosperity or financial resource scriptures would have to therefore when believed and when acted on bring material resources. Paul said it this way Romans one sixteen. 16 he said for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and what is the gospel of Christ? Was well, the good news of what Jesus has done for us but how do we know of the good news? Through the word. That's the only way that we know of the revelation that Paul received about what Jesus did for us and who we are in Christ. did not it? So we would have to say that the gospel of Christ includes the word of God. At least that's the form or means whereby God has revealed the the good news of Jesus to us. So I'm not ashamed, he said, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, meaning the word of God. For it, the word of God, the Bible, scriptures. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Now the word salvation that's used there is a word that's an all-inclusive term. It's the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it means to rescue. It means to deliver. It means to heal. It means to make safe. And it means to make sound. So, he's saying the, the gospel, the word of God, is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. That means is the power of God. The word of God is the power of God to save. The word of God is the power of God to deliver. The word of God is the source of God's power to heal. The word of God is the source of God's power to rescue the word of God is the source of God's power to make sound. Now, there's several of those definitions, several of those words that uh, uh, the Greek word "sozo" means that could be applied to finances. You need to be rescued from a financial problem. God's word is your answer. You need to be delivered from poverty. God's word is your answer. You need to be made uh, made whole or made sound financially. God's word is your answer. Paul is saying exactly the same thing, just inspired by the Holy Ghost to say it in a little different way. He's saying the Word of God is your answer. Well, then, folks, if that's true, the Word of God, and again, it's not an automatic thing, believed, accepted, received, and acted on. If the Word of God, accepted, received, and acted on, is the answer for financial well-being, why is the church in such a financial mess? For the most part, Christians are in financial trouble. Or why does the church take such a dim view of financial success? Well, if the Word of God is true, then it means the Word of God concerning finances that God sent to bring financial resource and help and deliverance to us is not being accepted, received, and acted on. So if you need financial help, the Word's your answer. Now, what is God's plan? Well, look back with me to to, um, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Well, I, I can't get there yet. I have to remind you of some things that we've said before. We know... That God told Abraham when he first appeared to him in Genesis chapter 12. If you'll obey me and go to the land which I tell you to go to. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And make you a blessing. Those are the three things he told him. I'll make your name great. That has to do with his children. I'll bless you. That has to do with what God does for him personally. And make him a blessing. Which means he has to have enough resources to help other people. Whatever resources you want to attach to that. Physical, spiritual, material, whatever. You can't be a blessing to somebody unless you have more resources than you need for yourself, right? Peter and John said in Acts chapter 3 to the uh, crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple, such as I have, give I thee. You can't give what you don't have. So you can't bless somebody with something you don't have. You can't bless somebody with something you haven't been blessed with. So when God told Abraham, I will bless you, I'll make your name great, and I'll make you a blessing... The 13th chapter of Genesis tells us what that included. It says, And Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. He was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that doesn't mean God gave it to him. Well, if you turn over to uh, Genesis chapter 26, when Isaac, the servant, is going out to find Isaac a wife, the servant tells the prospective wife's family, the Lord has made my my uh, employer, Abraham, rich. The Lord has given him silver, and the Lord has given him gold, and cattle and herds, and so forth. So you can say that it wasn't God that did it, but the Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and God adds no sorrow to it. Now, that's another thing, and, and forgive me for taking my time on this, but I, um, I just feel like there's so many things that are left unsaid. There's a lot of ways to get money in the world, folks. But not all those ways to get money will make you happy. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. You can get rich by stealing. You can obtain money by taking from other people, by being dishonest. Some businessmen are dishonest, and those are the ones that make all the, the headlines in the newspapers and on the TV. Most businessmen are not dishonest. Dishonest businessmen don't stay in business long because people catch on, and they won't do business with them. But there are other ways to get money and to make yourself rich, obtain riches, than the blessing of God. But God's way brings only peace and joy associated or attached to it. That's the best way. So the Bible says the blessing of the Lord, the very blessing that God said that he would give to Abraham, would make you rich and God would add no sorrow to it. There would be nothing but joy and peace associated with it. Now, Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Now, the church seems to read that. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, actually, the church doesn't even read it that way. Church reads that Christ has redeemed us from sin because Jesus hung on the cross. And that's as far as most people ever go. Most of the church world is not even aware that Galatians 3.13 is in their Bible. But the Bible says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, which is spiritual death, sickness, and poverty, specifically enumerated and identified in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In other words, Jesus finished the work. Verse 14 of Galatians 3 says why. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. It goes on to say, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. But whatever, the church seems to take a position of spiritual uh, priority by saying, well, we have spiritual blessings. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly place in Christ Jesus. That does not do away with the fact that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham would be yours too. I don't care what spiritual blessings you think we do or do not have. It does not do away with the fact that the Bible specifically states that the blessing of Abraham is supposed to be ours here. Now, you've got to be uh, dishonest to say that the blessing of Abraham did not, re, did not include material resources and wealth. Nobody would say that about Abraham, but the church is unwilling to say that about themselves or herself. Why? Why? Well, personal opinion, I think it's just the work of the devil to try to keep the church from operating in the financial well-being and peace, overall peace, that God wants us to have. Folks, prosperity is not about money. Prosperity is about freedom. There's an old Jewish saying, an ancient Jewish saying that says something to this effect. Forgive me for butchering it up. I don't have the exact quote. But it says something like this. It says death and poverty are pretty much the same. The options for both individuals are very limited. I think they got that right. How many of you have been in a situation where your heart yearned to give something that you didn't have to give? Maybe a special offering was being taken and you could see the worthiness of the project and you just knew God was in it and you just wanted to be able to write a check and satisfy the whole amount. But you couldn't. Well, let me ask you something. Was that desire godly or ungodly? have to be a godly desire wouldn't it then was your inability to fulfill that godly desire the will of God or contrary to the will of God well I can see smoke coming out of some ears I'm getting some gears to work in people's heads that hadn't worked in a long time see we don't think this way the Jews do They don't think so much about the will of God and and God speaking to them about doing things. But they do think in those terms. They understand that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where it talks about in chapter 1 where God made the earth in six days. And over the the course of those six days he looks at everything that he made including the seventh day when he rested. And said seven different times that what he made was either good or very good. Thirteen verses later in chapter 2 he says the gold of a certain place was good. They understand that he wasn't just talking about the metal was good. You could you could well imagine that at the creation, the gold that was in the earth was pure and refined, as if it had already been refined. That's the only way God would make gold, isn't it? But they understand that that is significant and symbolic. That gold is a metaphor for everything that includes material well-being and wealth. In other words, they take it from a standpoint, and rightly so, in my opinion. Just like God looked at the creation before there was ever any presence of sin and said seven times, including man, this is very good. And then the next thing he calls good is the thing that represents money. Now I think I can go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is God speaking to Moses to instruct Israel about the promised land that they're about to go into. They're going in 40 years late. They were at the very edge of the promised land 40 years earlier and wouldn't go in because of unbelief. They said, we can't do what God told us to do. Now here, 40 years later, God says, here's the land that, I'm, that I've provided for you today as well as 40 years ago, and here's what it's like. I told you to go there, and I didn't go there myself. Let's start reading in verse... Chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. That means abundance, doesn't it? Thou shalt not lack anything in it. That means abundance, doesn't it? Not only abundance of wheat and bread, abundance of everything. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Now please notice what he does not say. He does not say, I planned for you to have a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But when you disobeyed me 40 years ago, I'm going to give you the backside of the desert instead. Personally, folks, I think you would have been justified in doing so. He did not say, prove yourself that you have more faith than your fathers, than your parents, that you're a better people than you were 40 years earlier when they were in charge, and maybe we'll see about giving you a better piece of land than the one I'm going to show you. God's plan didn't change even though the unbelief of their fathers has kept them out of it for 40 years. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. What does the promised land represent? The church automatically says, well, it's heaven. You're going to have to dig stones out of heaven. You're going to have to dig brass or iron. And all of that, remember when they got to the promised land, God told them that they would have enemies in that land. He told them how to defeat their enemies but to go out against them that nobody would be able to stand against their armies. Are you going to have to fight battles in heaven? Then how could the promised land represent heaven? Not only that, but it talks about the blessings of the promised land being contingent on their obedience. In other words, the keeping of the word. Are blessings in heaven contingent on obedience? Only to get there only obeying the word of God to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But folks, there is no VIP section in heaven. There's not a place where some can go and others can't go because they lived a godly life here on the earth. Furthermore, there are no cheap seats in heaven, at least that the Bible tells us about. There's no place for those that got saved just before they died and have no earthly or heavenly or eternal rewards to take with them and if, that's, if it is the case that that is the way that it works and the Bible doesn't tell us, then God's unjust. He, should do, he would be just to say, now heaven is full of different levels and classes. Live a good and righteous life here on the earth so that you can get to the highest class. But he doesn't do that. The blessing of heaven is the same for everybody once they're in. And of course, we get in by making Jesus the Lord of our lives. Now, there are rewards that we receive in heaven for the things that we do here on the earth. The Bible talks about earthly things. If we live our life in earthly ways, that those things will burn up. They'll be tried by fire and they'll burn up. So we won't receive rewards for those. But anything that has a heavenly or eternal or spiritual quality to it will be judged and we'll get an eternal reward for that. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. I'll refer you back to it in a little bit. So the point is very simply this. The promised land cannot be uh, indicative or an illustration of heaven. The promised land is God's will for his people here on the earth. Now again, some will say, the church will say, well, that's just for Israel. Well, but Galatians 3, 13 and 14 say that Jesus died for us to have the blessings of Abraham or the blessings of Israel. So if this ever belonged to Israel, it belongs to the church today. If the Bible's true, isn't it? Why is the church so adamant about trying to do away with and, and turn away from the material blessings here on the earth? Because they've got the idea that a substitution has to be made. You have to substitute spiritual things for natural things or else you would be considered to be ungodly. And nobody is willing to put their entire, the entirety of their efforts, the full weight of their energies, into something that they don't consider to be worthy or righteous, or moral. And here's the difference between the Jews and their wealth in the church. The Jews have no problem seeing business as a moral and worthy endeavor. The Christian, by and large, sees getting a little bit more than you need as being okay, but starting to really, really gain wealth as being an ungodly and immoral thing. You can see it so often in Christian businessmen's offices. Their offices will not be lined with their stock reports and the things that showed how they've increased the value of the stock for the shareholders and so forth because they don't consider that and the world doesn't consider that a worthy or moral endeavor or result. But their walls will be lined with good works, plaques and and certificates from things that they gave or projects that they were involved in, charitable donations and such and so forth. Why? Because the Christian, businessman or not, successful or not, Fortune 500 businessman or not, by and large, does not see the moral worth of business. And the Jew does. Now, the Jew is denigrated for it. The Jew is looked down upon in almost every class of society, element of society, and says, well, all they're after is money. Why? Because they recognize that money is spiritual. And the church does not. Now I've said that several times and I'm going to get to it tonight, I'm going to try to get to it tonight, but I'm not there yet. Please notice, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Please notice this is God's plan for his people here on the earth. Now remember the people that he says it to, the Bible calls them servants, and it calls you children. Those of us that have made Jesus the Lord of our lives are called children. Would God ever want to, more for his servants than he'd want for his children? Do you? Do you want to treat people that work for you or people that you hire for services and goods? Do you want to treat them better than you treat your kids? Of course not. Our kids are the number one priorities in our lives. Why would it be different than that for God? The Bible says if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does God know how to do good things and give good gifts to his? Your desire to put your children first is a godly desire. God put it there, which means God has the same desire for his children. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Again, verse 10. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and the statutes which, which I command thee this day. What is he saying? He's saying that wealth has an intrinsic Pull away from God so you're going to have to be on your guard he doesn't say now don't take advantage of any of the wealth he doesn't say even though you're going into a good land that's full of resources those resources are evil stay away from that olive oil and that honey don't eat the bread because it's evil it's not evil everything there is good But the devil will try to distract you, not just with evil, but with good things too. Not just monetary things. He'll try to distract you with anything. So Moses knew this. Moses, who was a wealthy man himself, knew this and said, Now don't forget God. Don't let it pull you away from God. God doesn't have any problem with you having it but it's up to you to make sure that it doesn't distract you from what's important and that's your relationship with him the priority of the word of God in your life now if you were not able to do that then God would be unjust to give you that opportunity knowing that you were unable but with every temptation there's a way of escape what's the way of escape here well according to Moses keeping God first in your life that's it That should be what you're doing no matter how much you've got or don't have. Shouldn't it? That's the only warning there is, folks. Nowhere does it say that resources are evil. Nowhere does it say gold is evil. In fact, the Bible says, God said gold is good. But the church takes a different point of view. And that point of view nullifies the word of God that God has given us to make us materially wealthy and to have an abundance. Now, as soon as you say that, you use the words rich, you use the words wealth or wealthy or whatever, those are all relative terms. The goal is not to have more money than anybody else in the world. If that was the goal, if that was God's plan, which one of Israel's children would have the most? And neither does he say to compare themselves with other people. Paul talked about doing that and he said that's unwise. There's always going to be somebody richer than you. And there's always going to be somebody poorer than you. There's a. Uh, and this is part of the Jewish. Ancient Jewish tradition too. In Exodus. Uh, well I don't know where the reference is. Maybe Leviticus. It's either Exodus 15 or Leviticus 15. It says, it says this. It says if everybody operated on the word of God. I'm paraphrasing. If everybody operated on the word of God. There'd be no poor people. And then it goes down a few verses. And says the poor you'll have with you always. Give to the poor because there's always going to be poor people. Now, a lot of people look at that and they'll say, well, see, there's one of the contradictions in the Bible. There's not a contradiction in the Bible because if everybody would operate on the Word of God, God would bless them and bring them out of whatever level they are to a greater degree of financial and material well-being. But there's always going to be somebody that's poorer than somebody else. And so we should always be on the lookout to help somebody that has less than us because if everybody is wealthy there's still going to be somebody that's relatively poor compared to somebody else. So that's what the Bible is saying. It's saying always be on the lookout to help somebody that has less than you. You know something else while I'm on the subject? You know something else the Bible says? And the the Jews are right on top of this. They know that giving to the poor is different than what the church considers giving to the poor. The church world considers giving to the poor as a handout. The Jews don't give to the poor in handouts. Because they go by scriptures that say something like, if you see your brother trying to get his mule out of the ditch, it's not right, it's unlawful for you to turn your eyes away and not help him get out, help him get his animal out. So they understand that means help somebody that's doing something for themselves. One Jewish rabbi uses this example. He said, if you saw somebody on the side of the road with a flat tire, you pull in behind them and stop and get out and going to help. Change the tire. What would you think if the guy throws you the keys and says, well, the jack and the tire's in the trunk, gets in the back seat and starts playing with his phone? Well, I don't know about you, but I'd hand him back his keys. I didn't stop to change the tire. I stopped to help him change the tire. And that's that's the example that they use in giving to the poor. The Bible instructs you to give to people that are helping themselves, doing something for themselves, not a handout to make somebody dependent on welfare. I knew that would go over big. Back to Deuteronomy eight. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, that must be okay with God. And when thy her- herds and flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thy hast is multiplied. That must be okay with God. And not only that, God is saying this is how it's going to be in the promised land. This is how God wants his children to live. When thy flocks and thy herds are multiplied and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. That sounds like abundance to me in every area. Then thine heart be lifted up and forget the Lord thy God who brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, notice what he's saying. He's saying when you operate in the promised land will of God of abundance in every area of your life. He didn't say, now, some of you will multiply in gold and some of you will multiply in silver and then others will multiply in the herds of their flocks. He said this should be the, 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 uh, the norm for everybody. One Jewish rabbi wrote a book on multiple streams of income based on these scriptures. God doesn't have a problem with that. We get pretty one-tracked on stuff. But God doesn't have a problem with that. That seems to be what God is saying is going to be the norm in the promised land, meaning his will for his children and his people in the promised land. He says, now, be careful when these things take place. Don't let your heart be lifted up. And forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. Oh, here's the point I was trying to make. I, I got away from it. Notice he says, remember the exodus. In order to keep your eyes on God and keep his word first place in your life so that your heart is not lifted up when you have uh, multiplied abundance in all kinds of areas of your life, remember the Exodus. Keep that in mind because we're going to talk about the Exodus. Remember the Lord that brought thee out of Egypt from the house of bondage who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions in drought where there was no water who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint He says not only remember the God that brought you out of Egypt miraculously but the God that provided for you miraculously when you didn't have anything to eat or drink. Who fed thee in the wilderness, verse 16, with manna. Nobody still has any idea what that is. Everybody knows about manna but nobody knows what it was. That's how miraculous it was who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee, to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in mine heart, My power and the might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. Now the last part, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day, is very simply identified as so that the blessing of Abraham would come on you too. So that the blessing that I made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would be yours in the promised land too. The very same blessing of Abraham that Galatians 3, 13 and 14 say that belongs to us, the Gentiles in Christ because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So it could not be clearer. I know most of the church world won't accept this, but it could not be clearer if the Bible is true that this is God's will for his children on the earth. It's his will for us to have an abundance in every area, no lack in any area of our lives, and keep God first no matter how much we have. And the thing that he says to keep God first in your life, keep his word before your eyes all the time, no matter how much you have, no matter how much you increase, no matter how much you accumulate in this earth, He said the thing to keep before your eyes is to remember the God that brought you out of Egypt, the Exodus, and who provided for you when there was little. Which indicates to us that God's plan is not to take somebody from zero to everything, but to take you from zero to wilderness, depending on him day by day by day, to prove their faithfulness To learn how to trust God when there's little and not much. So that he can bless you on the latter end. And folks, this is exactly what Paul said about himself. He said, I've I've learned the secret of life. How to live when there's an abundance and when there's lack. Paul is saying, I'm the same whether there's a lot or whether there's uh, nothing. And the secret is this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned that Jesus is the same whether the bank, bank book is full, the bank account's full, or whether it's empty. Whether I've got a pocket full of money or whether I don't have anything to, to show for at all. I've learned that God's the same and he always takes care of. It. But the promised land example is to remember the God that took care of you in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, when it seemed like there was no opportunity whatsoever so that he could bless you with abundance at your latter end. Some people aren't willing to have it that way. Some people want to be blessed. They want to be rich. They want to do everything right now. Proverbs says, the person that makes haste to be rich won't be innocent. It's a wrong attitude to have. Now turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Remember what he said to, to keep, his, keep your eyes on? Keep your heart from turning away from God when he blesses you. Remember the God that led you out of Egypt? Let's talk about God leading them out of Egypt. Again, I'm, I'm focusing on some things from a Jewish perspective because I think there's a lot of things the church, is, the church can learn from the Jews, specifically in the area of finances. They don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about the, the mandate of the church and so forth. But they do know something about the blessing of Abraham. If you're not willing to learn from the Jews, that's up to you. But I am. If they know something I don't know, if they learn, if they have a mindset toward finances that I don't have that enables them to operate in the material blessings of Abraham that I haven't yet learned, I want to learn it. Doesn't that seem reasonable? There is no greater illustration in the Bible of redemption than the Exodus story. None. Even when you look at People whose lives were changed. Paul, for example. Paul's life was changed by meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was a dramatic change, but it doesn't explain, at least in one summary, like the Exodus story does, what redemption did for the people. We see people's lives change. We see their hearts change. Their spirit's been being recreated. We see the effect that it has, that has on their lives. But in most cases, it takes us, like for Paul, the example of Paul, it takes us throughout the, the 20 chapters of the book of Acts to see his growth and maturity plus the letters. But the Exodus story shows us everything God intended for his people in one fell swoop. Just add Jesus. Now what did God tell the people of, uh, in Exodus? Well, you remember the plagues? And finally, the last of the plagues was the death of the firstborn and God warned Israel about what to do. And they, uh, he told them to institute the Passover, and he said, "This Passover is going to be something you're going to celebrate every year at this same time every year from now on." The Jews still celebrate Passover today, and they still do the same things, the same ritual. They don't understand the significance of a lot of it, but they perform the same ritual every Passover meal every year, as they celebrate. Now, what what did God tell them? Well, God told them to kill a lamb. Take the blood and put it on the doorpost. The blood, the slaying of the lamb signifies Jesus, the death of Jesus. The blood signifies that we're covered under the blood. That's how we're in Christ. He told them to stay in their homes and partake of the Passover meal. In one place it says they were instructed to eat the the lamb for the strength of their journey. Now, after the, the firstborn of all the Egyptians Um, are killed then Pharaoh hears the cry of his people and his own son dies Pharaoh hears the cry of his people and everybody there's an uproar and everybody realizes and recognizes this is the God of the Hebrews that did this get them out of our land so it says the Egyptians forced upon Pharaoh the mandate to get out and get out in a hurry God has already told them to be ready to go at the drop of a hat. So I'm going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took up their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses that they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Now, folks, here's the way the Jews tell the story. The Jews say they left in such haste that there was not even time for the bread to rise. But there was time to take care of the finances. Now, as I said, the picture of the Exodus is the picture of redemption. There is no greater picture that shows the the deliverance from bondage into freedom, darkness into light, spiritual death into life, if you will, at least the analogy Therefore, And notice what it does. The Bible says he brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one people among them. How did God bring the children of Israel out? He brought them forth with healing. There's a good indication that one of the first things that happens in, uh, uh, after they begin their journey away from Egypt is they come to a place, the waters of Mara that were bitter, they couldn't uh, drink of the waters. And God says to Moses, tell the people, I am the Lord that healeth thee. I think that's Exodus fifteen twenty seven, 27 or 6. One translation says, I am the Lord that healed, past tense, healed thee. Meaning, meaning, one meaning can be interpreted that the healing came when they ate the Passover lamb. Healed and ready to go on the journey. Now that's, there's no way to corroborate that. There's no way to prove that one way or the other. But we do know that healing came to came to, to everybody in some manner. Because he led them forth with silver and gold. There was not one people among them. So those that were feeble all of a sudden aren't feeble anymore. So the healing had to come somehow. So notice the provision that's made in the picture of redemption. Not only do they escape from bondage into freedom, which is a picture of escaping the bondage of the devil, the bondage of spiritual death, and being translated into, into eternal life through Jesus. Of course, that's not what they had, but that's what we have through Jesus. But not only did he provide for freedom for his people, he provided for healing, and he provided for them material wealth. Now, what was this material wealth for? Well, this is material wealth is what they spoiled the Egyptians with was what they used to build the temple or the tabernacle in the wilderness and what they used to become established in the promised land 40 years later. And the Jews, the Jewish mindset on this is that business is so important to God that in the midst of the biggest hurry that they were ever in, they took care of their business affairs. How could business be ungodly when God said take care of the business before you leave? Now the Jews recognize this as a transaction. They're, they're receiving or asking for, demanding literally, payment. King James is pretty poor where it says they borrowed and lent and so forth. They're demanding payment for their service to the Egyptians for all the years they've been in slavery. And here's the mindset of the Jewish world on business. Every business transaction is payment for goods and services rendered. Now, there's a verse of Scripture here I want you to see again in chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12. I want you to see this. It's verse 36. It says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians So that they lent unto them, literally paid them, such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. In other words, they were paid well. The value to the Egyptians to get rid of these people was that they would give them everything that they owned. And they did. See this word favor? I don't know how to say the word, but it's spelled from the Hebrew. It's spelled into the English C-H-E-Y-N. It literally means, according to the Jewish rabbis, this word literally means God's plan for human economic interaction. Let me say that again without messing it up. This word means God's plan for human economic interaction. It's the origin for the English words coin and gain. This word also serves as the root of the Hebrew word that's used for a store or a shop as well as for a market-based economy. The Jews recognize every form of business as a moral transaction. Oh, that the church would have their eyes open to that truth. Now, real quickly, I know I'm out of time, but let me cover this real quickly. Everything that a human being does can be on a a straight line spectrum with one end of the spectrum physical and the other end of the spectrum spiritual. Every activity, every action is somewhere on that straight line between physical and spiritual. On the spiritual end, we'd have to put prayer. Any creative work like composing music or something like that would be high on on the line toward the spiritual side. But any of the things that man does as a a means of just physical or bodily interaction would be on the physical end. For example, eating would be on the physical end. Now, the way that the Jews, and this is Jewish tradition, the way that the the Jewish rabbis teach. The Jewish tradition is very simply this. You can distinguish between the physical and the spiritual transaction, where it falls on this line. In a couple of ways. Number one, can it be duplicated or is it duplicated by animals? If so, it's on the physical side. Can it be reproduced or duplicated by machines? If so, it has to be on the physical side. Now, animals eat just like human beings eat. Animals have bodily functions just like human beings have bodily functions. But there's something about the human spirit. There's something about the human being, the human existence, that our most physical activities have to have some ceremony to attach to them. For example, animals eat just like human beings eat. But an animal would not understand putting a meal on a plate, setting it on a table, and eating it with silverware. What do we do? Why do we eat that way? Why don't we eat like the animals do and just grab whatever's around wherever it is? Because we attach ceremony to show our spiritual natures. As far as the Jews are concerned, the lifting of the, the food from the, the, from the table off the floor shows an, a, an ascension toward spiritual side. Lifting of the food from the plate to the mouth is lifting it up to the spiritual, the head, which represents the spiritual part of the body in the Jewish world. That's why the natural activities, the physical activities that are common to all of us in life have other ceremonies attached to it. For example, animals have, have children, have offspring, but they don't name them. They don't have rituals attached to them where everybody comes to the hospital and looks and says, oh, isn't that sweet? Animals die just like humans die. But we have ceremony attached to it. We don't just leave Aunt Agnes out by the side of the road for Tuesday's pickup, garbage pickup. We have burial ceremonies and, and services and so forth. And folks, I don't mean to be gross here, but bodily functions are a part of, the, uh, of animal existence just like human existence. An animal goes to do, to do whatever he needs to do wherever he needs to do it. Well, a human being has the same bodily functions, but we attach ceremony to it. We decorate bathrooms. Right down to the little shell-shaped soaps in the dish. Sometimes it's the most decorated room in the house. Think about that for a minute. What are we doing? We're trying to cover up the base or physical part of our existence. We're trying to attach some ceremony to it. More than one of us, more than a few of us, I'm sure, have been told by parents or grandparents, you didn't grow up in a barn, quit acting like that. For any variety of reasons. The point is, there's something about the human existence that distinguishes us. We know that it's the spirit that distinguishes us from animal activity. Now, any animal would understand coming home from a hard day at work and plopping down in the, on the sofa. Animals rest. But they would not understand getting out your iPad or your smartphone and looking at today's news for a period of time. They would not know what's going on there. Furthermore, an animal... Would not enter into some kind of financial transaction for anything that it wanted. An animal would take whatever it wanted and fight for it if necessary. Not so with the human interaction concerning business. A business exchange has been called the only way to transfer goods outside of a gun. It is the most moral, it is the most peaceful method of transfer of property known to mankind, known to the universe. It is a spiritual, not a physical activity. Business is going to rate right up here along with composing music or painting art or something that we would consider very creative. Why? Because business is a spiritual activity. It's not something that would be duplicated by machines. A machine can't establish a value. If I buy a pair of shoes for $20 and you like them and say, I want one, I want those, can I have me buy them from you? I'll give you $20, I don't want them. I don't want the $20. I don't want to have to go buy another pair and go to the trouble and go to the store and all that other stuff. Offer me 50 maybe we've got a deal. Now think about what's happened. I've made money. You're happy because you valued the shoes at more than $20. You valued them at $50. The shopkeeper made money because he made money when I sold them or when he sold them to me. The guy that he bought them from, from the material guy, the leatherworks guy, he made money. This same piece of good, this same pair of shoes, established and could continually, in theory, infinitely increase in value. All you have to do is find somebody that they're worth more to than they are to you. And each time it's a spiritual transaction. There is no economic business activity that doesn't take place except for the voluntary will of the human being. And that's a spiritual exercise. The Jews get this. The Jews understand that business is a spiritual activity. The church tries to hide and, and, and separate their lives. They say, well, I, I do this for work, but I'm really over here, I'm this person over here instead of that person over there. Why? Because we associate business activity as being some ungrounded, unmoral, unworthwhile, whatever. We're just doing that to pay the bills. You are not doing it to pay the bills. You are exercising your spiritual creativity in any business endeavor that you enter into. Every person on the planet is a businessman or a woman. We ought to act like it. Now, if money is spiritual, if transactions are spiritual, what is tithing? It's the voluntary will of the human being to make a transaction with God. The Jews don't consider the tithe as being 10%. The Jews say they get to work for an employer that gives them a 90% commission. I like looking at it that way. There's not many people you can work for that you can get a 90% commission. But that's what God does. The Old Testament instruction for tithing, I, I can't do this justice, but I'm, I'm going to try to hit it real quick. The Old Testament instruction for tithing is very simply this. You're not allowed... To eat the tithe or use the tithe for something and a purpose other than the purpose God told you to do. The Bible says the tithe is holy. The tithe is 10% of whatever you have, whatever you make, whatever you earn is 10%. The Bible says the tithe is holy and it belongs to God. How can 10% of your money be holy if money is not spiritual? Are you with me? Furthermore, the instruction that we're given to tithe is to do one of two things. Either take it to the temple and worship God with it. I'm talking to Old Testament instruction to Abraham and, and his seed. Is to do one of two things. To take it to the temple and worship God with it. Or on other occasions at different feasts and so forth, to take it to the, uh, to the synagogue and eat it there before the Lord. In other words, the tithe is supposed to signify... That which is holy, that which is God, that 10% that belongs to God is supposed to signify either fellowship or worship with God. And that's what God says to do with that which is his, that money that is his, the 10% of whatever we make that is holy to fellowship with him or to worship him with it. Let me close with Malachi chapter 3 to hammer it home. Malachi chapter 3, you're going to be familiar with this scripture, but it proves even more so the spiritual nature of money and or business. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Even from the days of your father you were gone. This is Malachi chapter 3. Does I say chapter 3? chapter 3 beginning in verse 7 even from the days of your fathers you were gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them now remember what God told Israel that if they disobeyed the commandments of the promised land then a curse would come upon them and their enemies would destroy them so that's the position that they're in here return unto me here's the answer return unto me and I will return unto you saith the Lord of hosts but you said wherein shall we return in other words the people's attitude is we haven't gone anywhere we haven't done anything wrong we're not keeping the word but that's not wrong it wasn't in their eyes but remember God's instruction when the blessing comes on you don't forget and let your heart be lifted up and think that you're doing it on your own they think they're doing it on their own whatever condition they're in they think they're doing it on their own so you said God says to them you said wherein shall we return here's the answer from God. Will a man rob God? How can you rob God if you're not in a transaction with him? How can you rob God if something doesn't belong to him? Or if there's not some agreement on what's going to be done between the two parties? Otherwise it's just a decision not to do something. Yet God says it's robbing him. Because he entered into a transaction. As far as God is concerned. God's in a transaction. He's in a business relationship with you. Now, I don't know how you look at it, but this shows us how God looks at it. God's in business with you. Will a man rob God? But you say, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped part of it. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? Here's the answer, in tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings can't be the same thing or he wouldn't say both of them. You can rob God in tithes. We know what the tithe is. The tithe is 10% of whatever you make. What are offerings? Whatever God puts on your heart to give. There's no set amount for that. There's no set purpose for that. There's no set means or manner for that to be taken, for that to take place. But they can't be the same thing. The tithe is specifically uh, given instruction to the children of Israel what to do with it. Take it either to the temple and worship God with it or take it to the synagogues and eat before the Lord signifying fellowship offerings there's no instruction on offerings whatsoever there's encouragement to give to the poor but that's not even a commandment or a mandate will a man rob god yet you have robbed me but you say wherein have we robbed thee in tithes and offerings and because you've robbed god you are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me even this whole nation here's the answer remember where we started Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the power of of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to deliver, to rescue. He said, here's your answer. You want out of a financial curse? Here's your answer, God says to his people. Now, I don't know if you're in the same boat that they are, but if you are, here's your answer too. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Sounds like a business deal to me. God is saying, here's how you get back into the business arrangement that I originally planned for you. Bring the tithes into the storehouse and see if I won't hold my end up with this transaction. I've said this before, but I'll say it here. I think it fits here. There is nowhere else in the Bible that God says to prove him with anything. Accepts your money, specifically the tithe. Verse 11, and, means an additional blessing, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he will not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast your fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts, and all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, and I'll bring you back into the blessing of Abraham. blessing of Abraham was I'll bless you I'll make your name great and I'll make you a blessing the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and he adds no sorrow to it God is saying if you want back into the arrangement that you left the business transaction the contract that you broke here's how and folks the same thing's true Hebrews 7 says here men that die receive tithes now Paul wrote this and I believe he did why and, and tithing was fulfilled in the Old Testament, as some people want to claim. Then why didn't Paul say, now quit that paying tithes stuff? But he didn't. He wrote to the Christians, he said, Here men that die receive tithes, but there in heaven, at the right hand of heaven, it's witnessed that you believe Jesus is alive. What does that mean? That means it triggers the transaction. Why would we give why would we pay tithes? Why would we give the Lord. Obedience in the area of tithing if we didn't believe Jesus is alive. That's wasting money. Let me read that last part again. Verse 12, and all nations shall call you blessed. That's the way it ought to be for the church. If the blessing if the Bible's true that the blessing of Abraham, Jesus died for us, that the blessing of Abraham could come on the Gentiles along with being made new creatures in Christ Jesus, which Galatians 3, 13, 14 really is talking about. If that's true, then this, is, this ought to be the way the church operates. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, land, land. That references the promised land, doesn't it? Delightsome land, saith the Lord. Now what would cause them, what change is he talking about that would cause other nations, other people, other groups to call them Blessed. Well, he said they were cursed with a curse, and here's the way out of the curse is to pay your tithes. So he's got to be talking about finances. It has to include financial well-being, doesn't it? That has to be part of the change that would occur. These are things the church ought to be living up to, folks. And I believe we will in the last days. I believe the Bible is true where it says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. I've asked this before, but when would that be for? can't be after the church is raptured. Who cares then? We're not here. It's not going to be during the millennium because Jesus is going to be in charge of everything and you're going to be ruling with him. When would it be for if not for the church age to do the work of God before Jesus returns? It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Now, how's that going to work? I have no clue. But I know it's attached to the word. I know it's all in the word. I know it's in putting the word of God to practice in your life because the word of God, the gospel is the power of God To rescue, deliver, save, heal, recover, make safe and make sound. Are you with me? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we have the privilege to be doers thereof. We thank you, Father, that the blessing of Abraham is ours. Thank you, Father, that Jesus was made poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty have been made rich. Through accepting your word, receiving it, and acting on it, Father, I thank you for increasing us. I thank you, Father, that the blessing of the tithe belongs to us. The windows of heaven are opened unto us, and you pour us out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. Father, I thank you for increase, spectacular increase. As in with you call, when you called Peter and John to be your disciples. You gave them a boat-sinking, net-breaking increase in their business. I thank you for the same thing in ours, Father. Financial miracles, in Jesus' name. We commit ourselves to you, Father, that we won't forget you or your word. We'll keep you first. We won't be turned, we won't be swayed, but we'll use that which you give us according to that which you put on our heart to do. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we commit these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.